We're back. Searching for political identity. Brian Escow, your host here. You know I like to start off the show by thanking you for being here, so thank you. This is the episode that I'm going to talk about, 2,000 Mules. If you're listening to a podcast called Searching for Political Identity, you're probably aware of the fact that 2,000 Mules is a political documentary that was just released by a well-known right-wing pundit, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, and the documentary makes allegations of voter fraud, voter impropriety, voter illegality, and essentially says that, but for this voter illegality, Trump would have won. Okay, so I'll break it down. I fact check, you know, I read the fact checking um, articles about the documentary. So I'll give you my two cents on it. And um, I will also address a question that someone on Twitter has been asking me, which is, do I think I've been disingenuous with how I've presented critical race theory? You know, given that I've just studied it in the last two semesters of law school, I'm graduating law school on Saturday, a week from today, and I have a pretty good understanding of critical race theory at this point, at least academically, intellectually, theoretically, certainly not experientially. But I've studied it and taken it seriously and respected it. And I'm being accused by at least one person of being like a Tucker Carlson and totally grift. So am I grifting? Um, am, I, am I no different than Dinesh D'Souza? I'll address that. And that's basically the substantive items that I'm going to get to. Again, that's what did I think of 2,000 mules? In other words, my two topics for today are do I think there was fraud in the 2020 election? And do I think I'm a fraud? <laughs> okay, here we go. And by the way, don't expect the most forensic analysis on my part. I'm going to give you my take. I wrote down a couple little notes, but I'm not one of these people that have drilled into this with unending interest, you know? Okay. What did I write down? Larry, El- first of all, what's going on here? Dinesh D'Souza, who is obviously a bright man, talented speaker, he enunciates very well, he's well thought out, he's got good rhetorical skills, he's a talented guy, okay, nothing wrong with that. Um, he is narrating, he's leading the, the charge here, and he brings in a group of fellow conservative commentators, a couple of them you might know, Sebastian Gorka, Larry Elder... Charlie Kirk, I think, is one of them. He's the sexual anarchy guy, right? That's what I know him from. And there were two other guys who I didn't know. But they're all fairly like-minded conservatives, which is great. And they're in this little speakeasy type uh, little room. And the movie is basically cutting between Dinesh's interview with this company called, or this nonprofit, I guess, called True the Vote, who examined... Um, and makes these allegations, the voting data, which I'll get into, voting data, I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. They make their arguments based on certain data, and then Dinesh basically shows that footage to this group of conservative friends, and then they talk about it. So I'll just briefly tell you guys what they presented, and I will think about it out loud, balancing it against the fact-checking that I read, and we're going to, well, not we're going to, I'm going to come to a conclusion as to what I think about it right here, right now. So the argument presented by this group, True the Vote, is, it has two parts to it. One is that they took, they purchased all this, and I really don't know how, but 
they purchased all this private cell phone tracking data and they are experienced with cell phone data, this group. And what they were able to do is they were able to, and of course it's just anonymous device identifiers. They don't have actual names of people doing, you know, tracking their movements, but they're tracking these uh, cellular devices. And they're able to say, look, we have, we can prove to you through this data that there are devices that are going to at least 10 Dropbox locations and at least five nonprofit political organization centers between, I think it was October 1st and Election Day. In other words, what they're saying is, look, we're telling you that these devices, which were obviously in the pockets of people, came within like 10 meters. I think I read one fact-checking article is about how precise it gets. So what is that, 30 feet? So is it persuasive to you that you have devices coming within about 30 feet of 10 Dropbox locations and five nonprofit political organization locations? You know, what does that suggest? Does it suggest that these people are mules picking up ballots? So the one component of the argument is the cell phone data, which they say tells a story. And the other component is this state surveillance footage footage that they purchased from as many states as they could of the ballot drop boxes. And what do you see? You see people with rubber gloves, uh, latex gloves, looking a little sketchy, disposing of the gloves right after they drop the ballots off. Now, is this COVID or is this someone being a little nefarious? You see people stuffing ballots into the boxes. It looks a little sketchy. You see people doing it at 3.57 a.m., 1 a.m. Uh, you see an older elderly woman in a home with her daughter, and the elderly woman says, they make you vote. Oh, they make you vote here. They make you vote here. I said, I don't want to vote. And they said, no, you have to vote. So they make an argument that there is foul play going on. And what they specifically mean by foul play is something they call ballot harvesting, which according to the fact-checking sites is legal in many states, but largely, I don't know why it doesn't say just outright, largely illegal in the states that this documentary focuses on. So ballot harvesting would be having someone pick up a bunch of ballots from point A and drop them off to a drop box or to several different drop boxes. And that's the accusation. In the states that this documentary focused on, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, that you had this underground operation that the Democrats were running in which you had these drivers that, you know, this group calls mules that would go around that somehow all these ballots had been harvested and put in these centers, these nonprofit centers, and people would just go around and pick them up and go about the business of dropping off to different drop boxes. And that is illegal. In these states, I guess it's legal for you to drop something off on behalf of your family or a household member or something like that. But what they allege is not legal. And the allegation is not that the ballots themselves are fraudulent or improperly cast necessarily. The ballots might be legit, but the process in which they were dropped off is the claim that was invalid. So Putting it all together, you have to ask yourself, do I find four sketchy clips of people putting ballots into a Dropbox either at 
an unusual time or in an unusual manner, plus this cell phone data argument to be convincing. I should add that they did have one person interviewed uh, who's anonymous, a woman who said that she did see ballots being dropped off in large quantities to these nonprofit centers and then picked up by the mules. And remember, the idea is that, okay, we've shown you a couple clips of what we have on surveillance tape, and this was state footage, by the way, so it was legit. But the idea is, hey, these people that are doing it at 3.57 a.m. and with gloves on and then immediately throwing the latex glove in the trash, and they didn't even know the trash can was there, they, so implying that they know what they're doing. They're saying, look, you're only seeing this once, but this person is going to Dropbox to Dropbox to Dropbox, and a little bit of of this impropriety over time is what pushed. And so Dinesh makes, you know, does the math and says, look, this could have easily swung the election. And then at the very end, what he does is he says, hey, let's lower the threshold for what True the Vote considered a mule. So instead of saying that the phone had to go to 10 drop boxes and five um, uh, nonprofit locations. I don't know why I can't. <laughs> I keep struggling to uh, get that out. He says, why don't we lower it? And so when you reduce that threshold to whatever you reduced it to, let's say five drop boxes and uh, three nonprofits, you know, it, it, it makes the numbers far greater. And of course, that means every, every state went Trump, Trump's way. So in response, the fact checkers say, first of all, you didn't prove anything. This cell phone data is imprecise. You're not accounting for the fact that it could be a taxi driver going on a route. It could be, there's just so many circumstances, a political operative who isn't even engaging in any ballot harvesting operations, but is in these locations. It's so many things, so many things. It's just not precise enough, number one. Number two, these videos that you have don't show clearly that anyone is dropping off more than what is legally allowed in these states. The guy at 3.57 a.m., yeah, he's stuffing the ballot box with like five or six of them. Maybe he's got a family of six. I don't know. Now, is it a little sketchy? Yes. Is it a little sketchy when the lady takes the gloves off? Yes. But maybe she has COVID. So that's what the fact checkers are saying. They're saying, you didn't prove anything, guys. So what do I think? First of all, I think Sebastian Gorka is obnoxious. I was not impressed by his analysis. He started off by saying, I'm supposed to believe that Joe Biden won 81. It's like, dude, I don't, what Sebastian Gorka is supposed to believe or believes is not really the litmus test. Let's get serious, Sebastian. Like nobody cares. The question is, do you have proof? I like Larry Elder the best in this group. I like Larry Elder, by the way. Larry is a guy who was saying, hey, big accusations require big evidence. And after he watched, he was of the belief, Larry was, that this would move the needle, that people would be shocked and outraged by this, as was Charlie Kirk. Um, What do I think? I think ultimately you cannot conclude that this proves fraud or illegality. So that's number one. I do think that this documentary is effective and will be effective at ginning up even more support for stricter voting laws for Republicans, because they're going to just say, nobody needs to be voting at 4 a.m. They're going to say that we've got to make sure that the rules are not being broken. They're obviously going to run with the scenario that the data, the suggestions asserted in this documentary are correct. So if I'm a judge in this case, I'm saying I'm ruling against 2,000 mules because 
They haven't proved it. But I'm also, if I'm the court of public opinion, I'm saying, huh, you know, this is something to think about. Okay, that's all I've got on 2,000 Mules. So if you're expecting more, so sorry about that. Let me now transition to my last topic, and I'll just do it quickly. And remember that is whether or not I feel like I'm being disingenuous with my presentation of critical race theory. I'm just going to start out by saying that there's no way. I don't think that at all. I don't consider myself to be a disingenuous person at all. In fact, I consider myself to be someone who wears their heart and their emotions and their opinions on their sleeve, sometimes to their detriment. What I would say is that critical race theory is a very interesting, sophisticated academic theory, legal theory, worthy of respect with much utility. Now, here's the thing. There is a diversity of thought within critical race theory. All critical race, all flavors of critical race theory agree that the main problem in American law and society today is white hegemony, is white power. They all agree that white power systems, structures, are the root cause of the inequality in America today. Now, where they differ is the prescription for that problem. Some folks would say, okay, because the answer is always structural change. So they're going to say, well, structural change could mean just treat people of color a little better, give them special protections that the law won't afford white people because white people don't need it, because black and white people are not at equal risk in society in, uh, to racism, whether it's employment, policing, whatever. So voting. So another group, another flavor of crits would say, hey, let's, let's make the laws different, radically different for everybody. That way, we're not treating people differently based on their skin color. But either way, critical race theory requires a recognition that an indictment of our society today. And while I recognize that there, racism exists and there are problems in our country that can be attributed to race, I'm just not prepared to indict our entire culture. I'm not. And that is required in critical race theory. I'm just not prepared to do it. I think it's useful. I think being critical is useful. And I'm not, I don't think that I'm not going, I'm, I don't think that I'm refusing to go all the way with critical race theory because I'm scared or that I feel, feel that you can't criticize your country in order to still love it. I just, I'm just really not prepared to go that way. I'm not prepared to go all that way. I think we live in a great country that anyone, regardless of their skin color, can move up and succeed in. Not perfect. I'm sure there's plenty of work to do, but I'm not prepared to indict our culture. Teaching our history more accurately, more inclusively, doing a better job of it is one thing. I'm all for that. But to take it that final step, which is to say those patterns still exist today in a way that is so powerful that they can't be overcome only and, and therefore that radical change is needed, just can't get there. I'm open. I'll remain open. But so am I being disingenuous when I say on Twitter, hey, look, <laughs> critical race theory wants you to believe that society is slanted to straight white men today. And people say, oh, my God, Brian, look at corporate boards. Look at, you know, disparity in police killings and salaries. And it's very hard to argue with those points. But much like the 2000 Mules thing, I can't make that jump. I, 
and you could call me stubborn, ignorant, racist, stupid, whatever, but my mind just does not go right from, oh, look at that cell phone data and those security camera footages. Well, that must mean that they're definitely correct in their assertion. Well, I can't go from, look at the disparate impacts that exist in society today, and therefore our society is racist. I can't go there. It's more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than that. So am I being disingenuous? I don't believe so. This guy on Twitter would accuse me of grifting, of pandering to conservatives, of stoking a fear of a culture war. And to him, I would say, my friend, I believe the culture war is real. I believe that I'm actually just observing and commenting on what's going on. You have people who have taken critical race theory and kind of distilled it into this anti-racism stuff. And that can be very useful too. Sure. Who doesn't want to uh, chip away at implicit biases? But when you start to develop a culture that is anti-white as opposed to anti-racist, that is not acceptable. And I do sense that from the farthest reaches of the left. And I've experienced it in the classrooms. You can't tell me that I haven't. There is a rage. You you want to talk about white rage. There is a rage, a hatred against white people and white culture from certain students that take critical race theory. And they're great people, man. They're all cool people. But they're angry. They feel like they've been really harassed and abused by the man. They want to transform our country. They really do. And that's okay. But I get, to, I get to talk about it. I have every right to talk about it. And maybe they're on the right side of history. I don't know. They want to get rid of the police. They want to get rid of test scores. And a lot of institutions are getting rid of test scores. They want to get rid of um, capitalism. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but they want to get rid of any traces of white Anglo culture because it's all bad. And that is, I think, the question we're facing as a society, as the demographics shift, right? What are are the values that have made America into what it is today? Are are those values going to remain that way? So you can accuse me of trying to rile people up, but from my perspective, all I'm doing is reporting on what I'm hearing in class, and I don't happen to agree with it. And uh, it doesn't mean that I'm not sensitive to issues facing people of color. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to demonize anybody. That is the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do with my podcast. So to that person, I'm sorry if you feel this way, but and maybe and maybe I can be more sensitive about how I post about critical race theory. I will definitely consider that, but uh, I'm not going to be intimidated or ashamed into changing my views. With that said, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. Let me remind you that starting Monday, right now it's Saturday, May 14th, I think my uh, bar exam books actually just arrived, so I'm going to go run downstairs, pick them up, and start studying uh, either tomorrow, Sunday, or Monday, and that means I am taking a 10-week hiatus from Twitter, so I'll miss you. I do mean that, and I will continue to podcast, release new episodes every Saturday, so don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. Appreciate your listenership. Yeah, bear with me the next uh, 10 weeks because it's probably going to be the most intense period of my life, right? Studying for the bar exam. And uh, I might need you to, I don't know, 
just be understanding. If my podcast really sucked during that time, you'll know why. But no, my intention is to keep it going. And most importantly, I want you to understand that as soon as I'm done with the bar exam, August 1st, I'm going to come back with a vengeance, and I do have big plans to make large improvements to this show. So I care about you, my listeners. I want this to be a great experience for you, and I do have plans to uh, make big improvements. So thanks so much. If you want to do me an absolutely huge favor, go ahead and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, and tell a friend about this show. Word of mouth is just the absolute best thing you can do for any content creator. So thanks again, and I'll see you next week.